Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 275, Exposing Dr. Heiser to Actual Biblical Unitarian Thought. I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Michael Heiser back in 2015 for episodes 97 and 98 of the Trinity's podcast. I encourage you to check those out. I like Michael Heiser. He's an interesting scholar. He's a bit of an independent voice. I like his work on the Divine Council and the Unseen Realm. I do find, though, that sometimes on the subject of Christology, he can take an extreme interpretation and just present it as if it's just the obvious truth of the matter. Recently, a Unitarian Christian friend of mine turned me on to a Q&A episode of his podcast, which is called The Naked Bible Podcast. I do catch this occasionally. I don't listen to every single episode of it. And it so happened that the topic of biblical Unitarian theology came up. That's where things got interesting. So in this episode of the Trinity's Podcast, you're going to hear the nine minutes or so of conversation that followed and my comments on it. And, and as you'll hear, the gist of it is Dr. Heiser kind of does an imitation of Triumph the Insult comic dog from Conan O'Brien's show. Oh, yes, that's a very nice theology. For me to poop on! <laughs> okay. So it starts off with a question from his layman co-host. And uh, you can hear Dr. Heiser kind of Darth Vader breathing in the background. He's loading the cannons to fire as soon as this question's over. Here was a listener question then that started the discussion off. Our next question is from Heath. He's studying the biblical Unitarian movement and why they reject the Trinity. I read a few articles today where they talk about the angel of the Lord appearances in the Old Testament and how this angel is indeed referred to as Yahweh, but that just means he's Yahweh's agent, not that he possesses the same essence or is ontologically the same as Yahweh. They say this has to be the case because 1 John says no one has ever seen God at any time, as well as that God is spirit. Hence, our senses can't detect him. And as a follow-up to the biblical Unitarians' arguments, I don't understand why they don't apply the same logic to regular angelic manifestations in the Old Testament. Given that because angels are spirits, just like Yahweh, we can't detect them with our senses either unless they physically manifest. I found zero resources from this movement saying that we should also understand physical manifestations of angels in scripture to mean that it was only an agent of the angel and not really the angel itself. Is this sound thinking on my part? Okay, so it's an interesting question. One thing the questioner puts his finger on is that there's an obvious interpretive problem for all Christians when it comes to God being seen. Because the Bible does say in a couple places that God has never been seen or that you can't see God and live. And yet there are some very famous and obvious examples in the Old Testament of people who literally saw God and, yes, even lived. And so, what do you make of those? There are going to be competing explanations about what those you can't see God statements mean. There'll be competing explanations when it comes to what is actually going on in these Old Testament episodes, these experiences that some people call theophanies. And the questioner, you know, he unfortunately characterizes biblical Unitarians as deniers of the Trinity. Of course, what's really driving biblical Unitarianism as a lay theological movement is the desire to stick to biblical theology, particularly New Testament theology, when it clashes with later small-c Catholic teachings. So the whole movement is really not organized around denying anything. It's organized around affirming New Testament theology and acknowledging its clashes with later traditions and saying, no, we're not going to accept your later traditions because we're Protestants. We're going to go with the Bible instead. And the questioner thinks he's kind of caught biblical Unitarians in a a, a crazy argument, in a silly error, that if just you can't see God because he's spirit, wait a second, angels are spirits too. So then it would follow that you can't see angels either, and that whenever someone sees an angel, they must really be seeing an intermediary that stands between the angel and the person. Yeah, 
These are big and difficult issues in biblical interpretation, and I want to get on to what Dr. Heiser says. But the basic move that a lot of Unitarian Christians will make is they'll say, look, this angel of the Lord can't be the pre-human Jesus. It says he's an angel, and angel's this different class of being. It's not a human being. It's not God. It's this third sort of thing. It's an angel. And so, yeah, why can't an angel just speak on behalf of God? Even human prophets speak on behalf of God. Even human prophets are authorized by God to make certain decisions and make certain pronouncements and so on. Why can't God just be dealing indirectly through an angel? I think all that's right insofar as it goes. It's not clear to me, though, that in all of these passages, the messenger of Yahweh is really supposed to be a true intermediary, an actual being. As I understand it, in some of these passages, the messenger of Yahweh may just really be kind of an emanation, an appearance produced by Yahweh. If you're an all-knowing and all-powerful being, it wouldn't be difficult to produce something that looked like a man, which people could then interact with seemingly in normal physical ways, and then just kind of use that as one's puppet, or use it like uh, in science fiction people use holograms and so on. So yeah, there are big issues of interpretation here. There are competing explanations of what's going on in these Old Testament passages where people experience God or experience maybe God and a messenger, whatever that is. And there are competing interpretations of what these statements mean that say you can't see God or that you can't see God and live. All right, so an Old Testament scholar like Michael Heiser, surely he will have interesting things to say about these heavy interpretive disagreements about the Bible. Here's what he says. Well, first of all, I have to say that biblical Unitarian is an oxymoron. There's nothing biblical about Unitarianism. Okay. (laughs) Not very helpful. This is one reason why I prefer the more kind of straight descriptive term, just Unitarian Christian, to the term Biblical Unitarian. People with very partisan loyalties, when they see the term Biblical Unitarian, they just have to go right out the gate with an insult. Oh no, it's not Biblical. How dare you call it Biblical? Can't you read what's wrong with you? And these are not helpful reactions. Now, what maybe Dr. Heiser doesn't realize is that, well, first of all, lots of people used to be called Unitarians who were understood to be Christians. And yet, in the 20th century, the word Unitarian got ruined by this new religious movement called Unitarian Universalism, which is a non-Christian religion. So, non-Trinitarian Christians, which used to commonly be called Unitarians, and that was understood to be a type of Christian, If we call ourselves just Unitarians now, people will think that's shorthand for Unitarian Universalist. And really, we're not anything like Unitarian Universalist. We're Christians. We believe in God. We believe in the Son of God. We believe in the Spirit of God. And we're not Universalists, most of us. So adding the word biblical to the word Unitarian communicates that this is a Christian view and that it's based on the Bible, both of which are true. Okay. So he's just delivered a completely unprovoked insult, and he feels the need then to back it up with something a little more kind. You know, it's just like the Aryans. You know, it doesn't mean that they're not believers. I mean, they could be believers. They they could recognize Jesus as the only exclusive means of salvation and embrace that. They could still understand the gospel, but get other points of theology wrong. There's that possibility. I'll hold that out for them, so I'm, I'm not going to be too pejorative here, but I do think biblical Unitarian is an oxymoron. Okay, well, to his credit, Dr. Heiser departs from the old small-c Catholic tradition of merrily damning people who are not Trinitarians. says, well, maybe they're believers. Kind of strangely, he builds into being a believer what recent scholars call exclusivism, which is that you're either part of the Christian church or you go to hell. I wouldn't say that's an essential part of the gospel. Anyway, I agree with him that you can believe the basics of the gospel, let's say basically the things preached in the book of Acts in the sermons there, or maybe even in the Apostles' Creed. Sure, you can believe those things, and you can hold to biblical Unitarian views. And what are those? Well, basically the one true God, Yahweh, just is the Father, 
that God is one person, namely the Father. Jesus is understood to be a real man. We don't believe in a doctrine of two natures, that he's divine and human, that he's a God-man, that he has a divine nature, etc. We believe that he is God's Christ, God's Messiah, miraculously conceived and then born from Mary, just like the New Testament says. About God's Spirit, some Unitarian Christians out there think that God's Spirit is akin to an angel or a lesser divine being, but probably most people who call themselves biblical Unitarians think that talk of God's Spirit and the Holy Spirit in the Bible should not be understood as teaching a third divine person or any divine person beyond God. Just like the spirit of Dale or the spirit of Mike Heiser are not people in addition to Dale or in addition to Mike Heiser, the spirit of God is not supposed to be someone in addition to God. Now, interpreting all the spirit talk in the Bible is more complex than I just let on. So I recommend checking out some of the early Trinity's podcasts, number 25 and 26, where Pastor Sean Finnegan talks about different things that can be meant by phrases like the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Okay, so what Dr. Heiser does now is he just quickly throws down a bunch of Bible passages and, you know, come on, can't you guys read What do you think about these? How could you possibly even read these with any comprehension and not be Trinitarian? Or maybe, to be a little more precise, how could you not believe that these passages involve a divine person in addition to the Father? So here he goes. You know, what about passages where we're not talking about the angel? What about Jeremiah 1? The word of the Lord is identified as Yahweh Elohim, and he touches Jeremiah. This is anthropomorphic language. Okay, he's about to leap to another passage, but let's just evaluate what he just said. So, in chapter 1 of the book called Jeremiah in the Old Testament, it's kind of explaining Jeremiah's call, his commission as a prophet. And what happens is repeatedly, quote, the word of the Lord comes to him. Before I comment on this passage, why don't we just listen to the whole thing in the New Revised Standard Translation? Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, truly I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a boy, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms, to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see a branch of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot, tilted away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north disaster shall break out on all inhabitants of the land. For now I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord, and they shall come and all of them shall set their thrones at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its surrounding walls and against all the cities of Judah. And I will utter my judgments against them for all their wickedness in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. But you, gird up your loins, stand up and tell them everything that I command you. Do not break down before them, or I will break you before them. And I, for my part, have made you today a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall, against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its princes, and its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Lord to deliver you. The way that Dr. Heiser understands the word of the Lord, he thinks it's just obviously a divine person, like a divine person in addition to the Father. But that's not what most scholars think. They think when the word of the Lord comes to someone, that's just God sending his message to them or God revealing himself to them. So in Jeremiah 1.4, the New Revised Standard translates, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying... And then the message is delivered. 
it doesn't capitalize words. So that's at least consistent with sort of a personal being just arriving at your house or something like that. But other mainstream Bible translations done by evangelical Trinitarians, such as the New Living Translation, will translate like this. They'll say, the Lord gave me this message. And so they took that idiom of the word of the Lord coming to somebody. They just said, well, God told me this. God gave me this message. The NET translation or the Good News translation have the Lord said to me. So how can biblical Unitarians possibly read this passage and not believe in a second divine person? Well, actually, it's really, really easy for this passage. It's well within the range of meaning to just think this is an idiom saying that God sends his message to people or basically just that God communicates with people. Now, why does Dr. Heiser say that the word of the Lord touches Jeremiah? It doesn't say that anywhere. It doesn't have the word of the Lord touching anybody. However, in verse 9, it says, Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. Okay, so the way he's thinking about this is that, hey, there's this word of the Lord, and then there's the Lord. And he likes to cutely say, are they the same person or not? Yes, haha, it's both. I guess he would view it as the authors deliberately sort of running these two persons together. So you think maybe it's the same being or something like that. But there's another way to take it. It's just that God's message comes to Jeremiah and then God is apparently like visibly manifesting and physically manifesting to Jeremiah so that God touches him with his own hand. So yeah, it's just very easy to read this text as only involving one divine person, that's Yahweh himself, and the word of Yahweh just doesn't need to be an extra person here. There's really not an additional character in the narrative. And, you know, I think if he was in a less polemical mood, Dr. Heiser would probably just admit this, that this passage is actually pretty easy to read for people who don't hold his views. So I think that's why he immediately jumps to another passage. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Heiser refers us to a passage that involves the calling of another great prophet. about 1 Samuel 3, where the word of the Lord, same word of the Lord, Jeremiah, stands before Samuel as a man. Samuel's seeing, the the account says it's a vision, it uses words like reveal, and you can't use anthropomorphic language of something that's invisible. How would you know it's standing? If you're not seeing anything, you can't use those descriptive words. Now, this happens over and over again. So he gestures at 1 Samuel 3, and he says, look, obviously there is a word of the Lord here who is a person. Really? Well, let's listen to 1 Samuel 3 in its entirety. And as you listen, ask yourself, how many divine characters are there in this story? Again, we're working with the NRSV translation. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli, and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel again a third time. 
he got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. Then the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears of it tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay there until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He said, here I am. Eli said, what is it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. Then he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. As Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was a trustworthy prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Now, I think that Dr. Heiser is correct about this passage when he says that something was literally seen by Samuel in this experience. But it doesn't say that the word of the Lord was standing. It says that now the Lord came and stood there. It does characterize in verse 7 this whole experience as the word of the Lord being revealed to Samuel. But as far as I can see, there's nothing at all about this passage that requires the word of the Lord to be a person in addition to the Lord. It says at the end that the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. I take it that that means that God revealed himself to Samuel in this way, that he revealed his message to him. It seems to me there's only one divine character in this narrative, not two. Next, Dr. Heiser draws our attention to a famous scene in the book of Genesis. You know, it's a, it's a false dichotomy. First of all, they're setting up, what about all these other passages? And, and even what they say about the angel isn't the case, because some of that word of the Lord stuff will leak into angel passages. Again, you can't isolate these things from one another. This is a matrix of ideas. And in Genesis 48, the angel doesn't say anything. He's not representing God. This is Jacob's assessment of the events of his own life. Genesis 48, 15, and 16, the three stands of prayer. May the God who did this, may the God who did that, may the angel, may he, singular verb form, bless the boys. You go back in Jacob's life, who is the one who did these things? It's Yahweh. But somehow Jacob feels quite free to put the angel in the mix, and then a singular verb is there. So it's not may they bless the boy, it's may he. Well, which one? Is it God or the angel? The answer is yes. The biblical writer makes no effort to distinguish them. So why are the biblical Unitarians making that effort? You know, I think that's a good question. I think it's a fair question. It's not just representation. Genesis 48, there's no representation going on. This is Jacob's assessment of the events of his own life under inspiration in the text of Scripture. So if the Unitarians really want to claim to be biblical, they might want to pay attention to the text. Okay, so what should we say about that passage in Genesis 48? Let's set the scene. Jacob is an old man and he's on his deathbed, and his son Joseph, who we've read a lot about in the preceding chapters of Genesis, Joseph brings two of his sons to his father Jacob so that he can bless them before he dies. And so he puts his hands on the two sons. So we'll just hear verses 15 and 16, which talk about the blessing. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my ancestors Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, bless the boys and in them let my name be perpetuated, 
and the name of my ancestors Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude on the earth. Now, I think Dr. Heiser has a point here that if the biblical Unitarian is going to insist that every time it talks about an angel, it means a class of beings which are neither God nor a human, then this passage is going to be kind of strange because in the first two lines, he's obviously talking about Yahweh, the God before whom my ancestors Abraham and Isaac walked, God who has been my shepherd. We all know who that is. That's Yahweh. Any reader knows that. And now he mentions the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, the messenger who has redeemed me from all harm. Now, is he talking about another here, or is he still talking about God? Well, it's all leading up to the phrase, bless the boys. It's all just addressing God. So it's pretty clear from the passage that he's describing God as the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, the messenger who has redeemed me from all harm. Looks like he's just calling God an angel, a messenger. Why would he do that? Well, because sometimes the malach, the messenger of God, can be just a manifestation of God. Some kind of visible or detectable, it could be an apparent human, so described in the text as just, quote, a man, or it could be a manifestation, like a burning bush or a pillar of fire. But anyway, it's some kind of reach out where God, who's normally invisible, uh, in some sense can be visibly or sensibly interacted with. So you can be a biblical Unitarian and just easily read this passage. It's just that God is being referred to here as a messenger of God. And the reason for that is because sometimes the angel of Yahweh can just mean a theophany, an appearance of Yahweh. One older commentary glosses this angel passage saying this. It says, The angel is here indistinguishable from the God of Jacob, as in Genesis 16.7, Genesis 16.10, and Genesis 16.13. It was the impersonation of the divine being as an angel whom Jacob had met and acknowledged as his God in the crises of his life. And then it mentions several episodes earlier in Genesis. Impersonation. So in other words, this is like a persona of God, a way that God appears to Jacob during his life. We could talk about those episodes. One of them, for instance, is where he wrestles all night with a man, and then he says he's seen God face to face. And apparently that quote, man, was... God, just manifesting in a human-like form. I'll admit to Dr. Heiser that these passages, these three passages that we've looked at, they're consistent with his theory, but they're also consistent with my theory, which is there's only one divine person presented in the Old Testament. If by divine, you mean divine in the way the one God is divine. Yahweh is the only God in the highest sense of the term God in the Old Testament. There aren't really two Yahwehs. There aren't multiple selves, each of which is Yahweh. There's one God, and of course God can appear in different ways, and God does appear in various ways. And God can act through intermediaries, literal intermediaries, like an angel or a prophet. But an all-powerful being can easily produce a manifestation, and you could call that, if you like, a quasi-intermediary. Uh, it's kind of like an intermediary. The person on the receiving end might think it's an intermediary, but really it's just God acting through this particular manifestation of himself. There's not really any obvious deadly problem here for biblical Unitarian theology. And Dr. Heiser said there's no representation going on. Yeah, I think that's right. If the angel here is just understood to be a manifestation, a theophany of Yahweh himself, then it's not a case of a true intermediary where one being is acting on behalf of another because this intermediary thing isn't a being. It can't act independently. It doesn't act. It's not a self. It's not an agent. You can say it does things, but whatever it does is really just what God's doing in this way. So that's right. But I don't think he's right to think that there's any sort of push here towards God being multipersonal. Now, it's part of his theory that the writer is deliberately sort of smudging together these characters. Yeah, in a sense, that's right. 
But again, that's the fact that these characters, the word of the Lord and the Lord, or the angel of the Lord and the Lord, or certain, quote, man and God or the Lord, yes, uh, there is sometimes some unclarity there about how many beings, how many things are involved. But the theory that these are manifestations of God perfectly well fits that fact. Dr. Heiser's theory is that they're trying to kind of jog you into thinking that God is multipersonal by all this confusion. I don't really think it is confusion. It's just that when you're talking about God and a manifestation of God, you could talk about that manifestation like it's a being, like it's a thing in its own right, or you could just talk about what that manifestation does as what God's doing, because it's God doing it by means of that manifestation. So should you distinguish the manifestation from God? I mean, yes and no. It, it depends what you mean. Uh, it's not distinguished as an additional thing. It's just like an event. It's, a, it's an occurrence. It's a divine action and an effect of a divine action at the same time. So if, say, God's manifesting as a man to someone, there actually isn't a man there, if this is what's going on. But you can distinguish God as he is in himself, or as he would appear in his full glory, versus God as he's appearing as this humanoid manifestation. So yeah, you can distinguish a theophanic appearance from God who's appearing, but it's not a distinction between two beings. It's a distinction between a being or a thing, a personal agent, God, and this event, which is his action and an effect of his action at the same time. Now, he thinks there must be some sinister reason here why biblical Unitarians want to distinguish between God and the angel of Yahweh or these, uh, quote, men, etc. I just said a reason which is motivated by actual Old Testament scholarship and which is perfectly consistent with our views. But if you really mean to be talking about distinguishing between God and the Son of God, of course, the reason why biblical Unitarians distinguish between God and the Son of God is that, according to scriptural teaching, there are a whole bunch of differences between God and the Son of God. And if you want to know what some of those differences are, I'll put a link on the blog post for this episode to a neat article at biblicalunitarian.com, which discusses differences between God and Jesus. You can also see episode 124 of the Trandys podcast, called A Challenge to Jesus as God Apologists. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Heiser speculates about biblical Unitarians' motives and methodology. understand why they approach things the way they do. It's true. He doesn't okay? understand. Because I'm not a Unitarian. I, I think it's likely because Uh-oh. they feel that, that what they can't understand can't be correct. And I, I, I really think that's the case with a lot of this kind of stuff. The text can't mean what it says or what it suggests many times over, because if it did, I'd be able to know how everything works. That's just not an honest approach, to be blunt. You know, I don't understand quantum physics. I don't even understand the physics and chemistry of how a car works. But that doesn't invalidate the science. So this part's unfortunate. And granted, he says he doesn't know what he's talking about, and he doesn't. I mean, he's just spewing out old slanders here towards non-Trinitarians. They go back basically to the slanders of Athanasius against the so-called Arians, who were really just mainstream Catholic Christians who didn't accept the Nicene Creed with its new and confusing language. He slandered them as, you know, know know-it-alls, people who can't accept mysteries and so on. Look, uh, Dr. Heiser, I'll put some reading suggestions on the blog post for this episode. Just pick any two of them and read them and see if you can find the part where it's clear that the author simply rejects things that he can't understand or that he can't fully understand. I encourage you to look for them, but spoiler alert, 
you're really not going to find these in biblical Unitarian authors. What they're actually doing is just what you're doing. They're trying to come up with the best way to understand these ancient texts, considering them all together and considering them even in light of the further divine revelation, which Christians have received through the New Testament. We're not just going to accept any old speculation, any old hypothesis about what's going on there. It needs to be well-motivated. It needs to make sense. I mean, this is how it is with speculations. They need to make sense. If they don't make sense, that's not a point in their favor. That's not to say that we're going to reject something just because we don't understand how it works. So that's just an old slander. There's really no truth to it. Attacking this is just attacking a huge straw man. And to say that our approach is not honest is, again, just a slander. And let's distinguish what a text says versus what a text suggests versus how a text fits into a certain overarching theory. It's really the third thing that we're talking about when it comes to these types of passages that we're discussing today. I think it's true that these passages call for thought on the part of the reader, but I don't think it's true that this points one in the direction of Trinitarian theology. Now, about Trinitarian theology, I've been exposed to a good amount of Dr. Heiser's work, and I'm not exactly sure what he thinks, quote, the Trinity is. It's clear that he's in the Trinity Club. He flies that flag, that he has that loyalty. He wants to be in the mainstream, at least that much in the mainstream. But does he think the, quote, persons of the Trinity ourselves, thinkers, intelligent things? Or does he just think that they're personalities or manifestations of God or something like that? Does he think it's apparently contradictory and yet should still be accepted? Or does he think, no, actually, if you think correctly about it, it's not apparently contradictory? Does he think that all you can do is give inadequate analogies and kind of leave it there? Or does he think there's actually an understandable, intelligible way to parse the traditional Trinity language? I don't know. Although sometimes he says things that make him sound an awful lot like an ancient monarchian, where he just thinks, well, hey, there's really one self here. It's God slash Jesus slash the Father. It's all just him. But my point of mentioning this now is if you think that's what the Trinity is, and yeah, I, I could see why you would think that's similar to passages like this one we just talked about in Genesis 48. Because as I read it, and as a lot of commenters read it, you just have God, then you have God acting in a certain way, taking on a certain dramatic persona, if you want to put it that way. Uh, yeah, but it's all really just God. There aren't really two selves there, but there's God, and then there's a way that God appears to this person at this time. And of course, he can appear in different ways to different persons at different times. He presumably has a wide degree of power and freedom there. Okay, so now that he's gotten out of the way, this kind of worthless lore about non-Trinitarians that they just don't believe things they can't, they don't believe things they can't fully explain. Now he goes on to slightly more kind speculations, uh, just that we have no idea what relevant scholarship says. And, you know, those poor dummies, I guess they're stuck with this view, but you know, if they would just be more educated, then they would very quickly outgrow Unitarian theology. Here's what he says. You know, by analogy, I think their whole position is is dramatically underexposed to ancient Near Eastern thinking, for one thing. You know, God of the gods, you know, as more than one person, isn't just a biblical idea. It's older than that. I mean, th again, this isn't a, a post-Christian invention, a post-first century invention. It's really, really old. And it's not unique to the Bible. Now, what is unique is the element of the incarnation, but the idea of God as more than one person or a God as more than one person at the same time, simultaneously in, in different places, that is ancient Near Eastern stuff. This is why I recommend Benjamin Summer, The Bodies of God. He's a Jew who point blank just bluntly says, hey, the idea of eternity is perfectly compatible with the Hebrew Bible. I recommend Summer because he goes back into the ancient Near Eastern material. Specifically, he spends a lot of time on, on the Akkadian and Assyrian material. And, you know, look, he's going to sound like a modalist when you read him because he's a Jew. He's not a Christian. He's not sensitive to how we would, you know, articulate certain things. And, but take the data for what it is or what they are. You know, the, uh, Summer's book is, is really, really worthwhile. 
because he ferrets out a lot of this kind of thing. Dr. Heiser will be pleased to know that I am not radically underexposed to the work of leading Jewish Bible scholar Benjamin D. Summer. Dr. Heiser is talking about Summer's book called The Bodies of God and the World of Ancient Israel. And not only have I read the book, I've interviewed Dr. Summer for my other podcast. And of course, Dr. Heiser here, his purpose isn't to give you sort of an accurate overview of this, but just to gesture at it as sort of obviously supporting his position. To just try to briefly do justice to it, Dr. Summer's book says that the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew language scriptures, everywhere just presuppose that God has a body. They didn't understand that to mean that God is a physical being in his essence, but rather that just God in some circumstances can be seen and can be physically interacted with. There's like kind of a standard manifestation there. He discusses the contents of the Jewish Bible, we call the Old Testament, in relation to other ancient Near East literature. And he says that in the Jewish Bible, there's a kind of concealed contest between adherents of divine fluidity and opponents of divine fluidity. And divine fluidity is basically that God can be present in multiple places in multiple ways at the same time maybe even present in objects like non-representational idols and holy sticks and trees and things like this. So ancient Near Eastern people thought that deities could manifest, say, at different shrines in different kind of standard ways. So there would be sort of different personae, different personalities, which could be going on at the same time. And there's really just one Ishtar or whoever, but then there's Ishtar of this city and Ishtar of that city, and they have distinct shrines and they're sometimes described differently. And yet really there's only one deity there. So the idea is that a deity can manifest in multiple ways and in a sense have multiple bodies, that is, have these physical uh, manifestations, different places, even simultaneously, different kinds of bodies. He calls all that divine fluidity. He even talks about God sort of taking on or partially overlapping with other beings. Um, so it's, it's a bit involved. Uh, but deep into his book, Dr. Summer tries to say some friendly things to Christian theology. And I think he's thinking kind of ecumenically here, Whereas some Jewish theologians really think Christian views are just uh, kind of crazy and obviously polytheistic. He says the Christian idea of the Trinity is just an example of divine fluidity. On page 132 of his book, he says, The Trinity emerges as a fairly typical example of the fragmentation of a single deity into seemingly distinct manifestations that do not quite undermine that deity's coherence. In other words, you could have one God manifesting in multiple ways, even multiple ways at the same time, and yet it's really still one God. So isn't Jesus just supposed to be a manifestation of God? Well, the thing about Jesus is he's supposed to be a real man. And that's clear in all the New Testament books. A real man with a real mother, and not just a quote man, not just uh, a manifestation of God that comes off as if it were a man. Is God present in him? Yes. According to the New Testament, God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He's in the Father, the Father's in him, etc. But yeah, it's not just an earthly manifestation, a local manifestation of God. I don't think Summer realizes how central the true humanity of the Messiah is to Christian traditions, even the Trinitarian ones. And so that's why I think he's kind of conflating different ideas. But just stick for a second with the core idea of the book, which is that in ancient times, a lot of people, including some Jews, thought that a god could manifest in different places at the same time in different forms and different personae. What does that have to do with the Trinity? Well, if you're a three-self Trinitarian, you're going to say, well, that has nothing at all to do with the Trinity because the Trinity are three genuine selves, three thinking things, three intelligent agents. And what we're talking about is just one agent acting in different ways. If you're an omnipotent, omniscient being, it wouldn't be hard to manifest, say, as a certain kind of man over here and as a woman over there and as a, an angelic kind of figure in a third place. Like that wouldn't be hard. You could manifest in five billion places at the same time if you're all powerful, right? A three-self Trinitarian is going to think this really doesn't directly 
have to do with the Trinity. Now, if you're a one-self Trinitarian and you think the Trinity is really just God himself interacting or maybe just living in three different ways at the same time, then yeah, you're going to think that this is relevant because it's a case of God living in distinct ways at the same time. Maybe in some sense he's living in heaven and yet at the same time he's manifesting on earth at this place and also at this place over here and also at this place over here. Of course, it wouldn't be limited to three manifestations, but anyway, I could see why you'd think it has to do with the Trinity if you adopt that way of understanding the traditional Catholic language about the Trinity. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what else does Dr. Heiser think biblical Unitarians are radically underexposed to? Okay, but Dr. Heiser's not done. As Mr. T said, I pity the fool. Dr. Heiser is still fool pitying biblical Unitarians for being so sadly radically underexposed to important, relevant scholarship. And it goes way beyond the book by Benjamin Summer. I think the biblical Unitarians are also radically underexposed when it comes to things like how the New Testament authors repurpose Yahweh texts from the Old Testament to talk about Jesus and show that they view Jesus as Yahweh incarnate. These quote-unquote biblical Unitarians spend a lot of time proof-texting, focusing on the problems, and they, and they, and they don't, you know, what, what they think is a problem anyway, but for an ancient person, they just give you a blank stare, like, what's the problem? Again, the, they become the measure of truth to themselves. Oof. If I can't see how everything works, then it can't be, Oof. I can't be really reading what I'm reading. Whoa. Very yeah, uncharitable. I just don't think that's a legitimate method. Terrible. I, I think it's dishonest, mm. you know, just, to, again, to be blunt. Wow. The New Testament writers will repurpose Yahweh texts, texts that don't have an angel or some other character, Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, the four consonants. They will make Jesus the character or the speaker of those texts. You don't do that as a Jew if you don't believe that Jesus is Yahweh. Right. Yes, of course. We don't know about this. We've never read Mark chapter 1 or Philippians 2. Yeah, we're so dumb. Oh, man. This is not Dr. Heiser at his best moment. Normally, I would be inclined to ignore a scholar popping off about things they don't know. I'm sure I've done that before. You know, love covers a multitude of sins and doesn't typically draw attention to them. But the reason I'm doing this episode today is because he's spewing out just uninformed assumptions about non-Trinitarian Christian theology, non-Trinitarian Christian biblical interpretation. And he's just putting out these vicious stereotypes, really, that don't have any basis in fact. I think if Dr. Heiser was better exposed to actual biblical Unitarian thought, I think he'd want to maybe have an argument with it that's more interesting. It doesn't involve just impugning the motives and uh, slandering them constantly as basically arrogant people who just, you know, if they can't fully understand it, are never going to accept it. Yeah, we all know about these texts where what was originally a prediction about Yahweh himself is now said to be fulfilled in Jesus in these latter days. And what's going on? At the end of that, you heard Dr. Heiser just slam it down on the table as an obvious truth that no ancient Jew could cite Jesus as fulfilling those texts unless that person thought that Jesus was Yahweh himself. Okay, well, just notice something about that statement. That statement is not a teaching of Scripture. If you think it is, tell me where. You might say, well, it's just obvious it doesn't need to be taught in Scripture. Really? So if it's self-evident, that means that basically if you understand it, you can't deny it. Well, actually, I understand it, and I'm 
pretty well informed. And I do deny it. And I'm not lying to you. I'm not just BSing it just to make a polemical point. Like, I don't think that's true. I mean, typically, if you know a bit more about theory of knowledge, what it makes sense to treat as self-evident are claims such that it's obviously impossible for them to be false, and so they have to be true. And this isn't one of those. It's not like two plus two is four, or there are no square circles, or nothing at one time exists and doesn't exist in the same sense. Those are self-evident truths. That no ancient Jew in his right mind could say that Jesus fulfills a prediction that was originally about Yahweh, unless that Jew thought that Jesus was Yahweh himself, that just isn't like those other truths I just mentioned. In fact, there are good reasons to deny it. I've discussed this phenomenon several times in blog posts at trinities.org. I call this the fulfillment fallacy. And the form that it takes is, this passage here was originally about Yahweh. The New Testament in a certain place says that prediction is now fulfilled in Jesus, and therefore Jesus just is Yahweh. That, I claim, is an exegetical fallacy. It's a bad form of argument because the conclusion doesn't follow from the premises. It's like a recipe for coming up with misreadings of the New Testament. If you read Mark chapter 1, where the author refers to make straight the paths of the Lord, originally make straight the paths of Yahweh, and says that John the Baptist is the person who's doing this preparation ministry, and you jump to the conclusion right in Mark chapter 1 that Jesus is God himself, you're misreading the gospel according to Mark. The gospel according to Mark is crystal clear about what its thesis is, what its main point is. It is that Jesus is the Son of God, that is to say, God's Christ, his Messiah. It says that at the start of the book, as the centurion confessed it at the end, as a hostile witness. It says that at the high point of the book, who do you see I am? Peter says, you're the Messiah. Right, that's the actual message of the book. And that's, on the face of it, not compatible with Jesus being God himself. God's Christ, his anointed one, is a special agent. It's a human who God has chosen and sent and empowered to fulfill a certain mission. That can't be God himself. That can't be just an appearance, a theophany of God. It has to be a real man, which is someone other than God, a different being than God, not God himself. Someone who is a representation of God, sure. Someone who's like God in many ways, yes. Someone who can speak on behalf of God, for sure. A prophet, yes, and even more. So it turns out to be a pretty big deal to be the Messiah in Mark, but it doesn't turn out to involve being God himself. If that's how you read Mark, you're misreading Mark. Now, how can a prediction have been about Yahweh and then be fulfilled in Jesus if Jesus isn't Yahweh? In general, I think there's one of two things going on here. One thing is that New Testament authors seem to think that scriptural texts can have more than one fulfillment. So, for instance, the prediction about the baby Emmanuel that Matthew says comes true in the case of Jesus. This Emmanuel was a baby in ancient times, and the author of Matthew would have known that. They would have actually read the text at some point or heard it read. He doesn't think that same baby is Jesus but he thinks that there's more than one meaning here. There's more than one fulfillment. And they just think that, you know, benounced only to God, there have always been these two fulfillments coming. There was the original one, and now there's one in the case of God's Messiah. In some other passages, it may be that they really think that God is fulfilling the text, but he's doing it through his human son. And so whether or not it's the first or the second or the third fulfillment, it really is God fulfilling it, but he's doing it through the man Jesus. So in general, those are the things I think are actually going on. Notice that no character in a gospel narrative, and also no author of a letter in the New Testament, draws this conclusion that because Jesus fulfills this ancient prophecy that was originally about Yahweh, that Jesus just is Yahweh himself. They don't draw that conclusion. But what they do is they preach that there's one God, that's the Father, 
And also, there's one Lord. That's someone else. And this someone else is a man. It's the man, Christ Jesus. So I'm sure you can find some biblical Unitarians, just like you can find any sort of Christians who haven't really thought about how New Testament authors use Old Testament passages, and in particular, how they think about fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. But yeah, some of us have thought about that, and it just seems not to present a problem for our position. And of course, we know that there are some scholars who just think that the New Testament is a code book which doesn't really proclaim openly that Jesus is God, but it's like this esoteric text where you can just uncover all these codes in which it is constantly sort of communicated on the down low, as it were. Or maybe it's not so down low. But anyway, they think it's just constantly being implied. And so now Dr. Heiser switches to mentioning one of these scholars who thinks like this. We interviewed David Capes, you know, last year at SBL. He has, he's done a lot of work in this area, Yahweh text, you know, uh, with Jesus. Uh, he had, you know, we, we had him on the, the podcast at SBL because a lot of his work has been now put into, um, you know, sort of popular reading form. I think it's called The Divine Christ or something like that. But David Capes, C-A-P-E-S. Right, The Divine Christ. Amazon, put Jesus in there. Paul, the Lord the Jesus, okay. and the Scriptures of Israel because, you know, is the subtitle. If you can handle, you know, scholarly discussion, then you can get the expensive one. But again, if you get the, the, the popular one, you're going to get the Link on the blog the post the for data, this episode. You know? um, so I think biblical Unitarians, I think this is why it's an oxymoron. They're just dramatically underexposed to this kind of thing. Just to throw in another two cents, they, they just seem to follow the thinking that Trinitarianism is a post-first century invention by some theologians, and that just is not the case. <laughs> it's an idea put forth in the biblical text. Earlier religions have similar conceptions. Well, hang on. The idea of a triune God isn't anywhere in the first century. It's not even anywhere in the second century or the third Christian century. It's a fourth century idea. This is what I've discovered after many years of carefully reading the primary sources in the first four Christian centuries. The idea isn't presupposed in the New Testament. It's not hinted at, suggested. It's definitely not implied. It's not implied later either until we get into the latter portion of the 300s. But let's let him continue. Any Unitarianism puts deity in a box as well. I have a hard time understanding how a Unitarian can affirm the reality of God and then deny God the ability to be more than one person. Again, because that's too hard to comprehend. Sorry, but deity in and and of itself can't be successfully and completely comprehended. So when you start denying attributes to a deity that are put forth by a source you claim to honor, i.e. the Bible, and you admit that you're not a deity yourself, your approach is inconsistent. Okay, It, It just is. It's just inconsistent. Well, you know, really this is a continuation of ye old rationalist slander. Dr. Heiser just assumes here, and because this is part of common lore that sort of goes around in apologetics and theological circles, he assumes that biblical Unitarians just have some philosophical or ideological thing where they can't admit multiple persons in God, and it's because they have this this wacko just out of the blue ideological commitment that they just can't accept what the sources obviously say. Now, to help Dr. Heiser out in understanding his actual contemporaries who hold these views, as opposed to imaginary people that one might fight with, what happened for a lot of us was we were Trinitarians, and then we went back and looked at the New Testament and the Old Testament, and we said, wow, properly understood in their own context, they actually don't teach, they don't imply that God is tripersonal. And the best understanding of these passages points in another direction, which is that the one true God just is the Father himself, and that Jesus is a man, his Messiah. We started as Trinitarians. We didn't start with any imaginary philosophical uh, dislike for God in any sense being tripersonal. And this is something that Dr. Heiser appears not to know, and I would recommend uh, my entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy called Trinity. There is no one Trinity doctrine. 
what happened was language was enforced starting towards the end of the 300s in the Catholic realm, and people made sense of it as best they could. And there's still theologians who are serious about truth. They're still trying to interpret this traditional language about God being three hypostases and one usia. They're trying to interpret that in a self-consistent and plausible way. So some understandings of the Trinity have it as incoherent, as demonstrably incoherent, as containing claims that just by logic can't all be true. So if you think the Trinity identifies the Father as the one true God, says those are numerically one, and the Trinity also says that the Son and God are numerically one, and yet says that the Father and the Son are not numerically one, what you said just can't be true just by logic. It just collapses into incoherence. It ceases to be plausible unless you can get yourself into a mystery-mongering frame of mind, which sadly a lot of people can. Um, but there are lots of Trinity theories where there isn't an appearance of self-contradiction. You might interpret the persons as just three ways that God lives. Well, that doesn't seem impossible. Why couldn't God eternally live in three ways? I don't know. You might interpret it as three manifestations, or you might interpret it as three divine things, three omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent selves. That's what some people call social Trinitarianism. I call it three-self Trinitarianism. But yeah, some of these ideas collapse into incoherence and some don't. Some of these ideas depend on kind of wild philosophical theses for inspiration or support. Some don't. All of them have a problem with the Bible, in our opinion. So you say, do we just think it's obviously impossible that God could be more than one person? It totally depends on what you mean by God being more than one person. If by God being more than one person, you just mean that God can do things like appear as a man who wrestles all night with Jacob and yet appears as an angelic figure to someone else or a burning bush to Moses. Sure, I, what's impossible about that, right? God's all-powerful. But if you're going to think soberly, you would think that even an all-powerful being can't make a contradiction be true. So when your Trinity theory brings in logical contradictions where it's affirming and denying the same thing, then no, we don't think God could be that way because that's just manifestly impossible. And presumably Dr. Heiser would agree. Presumably he would reject certain interpretations of the New Testament and the Old Testament because they're incoherent. So here's a stupid incoherent interpretation. Suppose someone said, well, I think because he fulfills this prophecy about this ancient baby called Emmanuel, God is with us, I think Jesus is that baby. Oh, and also in the same sense, I think he's not that baby. Hey man, it's a paradox. This is the son of God, right? He's divine, right? So you can't fully understand God, so therefore you should accept this interpretation of Scripture. Well, no, you shouldn't. I mean, you can't be identical to a certain person and not be identical to that same person in the same sense of identical. It's just nonsense. So once you see an interpretation is self-inconsistent, if it's an incoherent set of claims, you just say, well, next we'd like these texts to be true, so we're not going to interpret them in a way such that some of their claims have to be false. So his parting accusation here is that biblical Unitarians are straight-up inconsistent. Well, let's be serious. Show us the inconsistency exactly. Just because we don't accept your theory about how to approach biblical theology, Old Testament and New Testament, doesn't mean that somehow we're affirming and denying the same thing. Putting deity in a box, trying to fully understand God? Look, we don't think God can be fully understood. God has innumerable plans for the future that we have never thought of before. And we don't claim to know those, so we don't think God can be fully understood. But the question is, what does God intend for us to understand by these writings? Is he foisting apparent contradictions on us? Maybe, although in most contexts we reject these as uncharitable impositions on the text. 
But yeah, it all comes down to just what makes the best sense of these writings in their own context. And of course, our best friend in this endeavor is historical critical interpretation, which refuses to foist 4th century and later ideas on 1st century or 4th century BC, 10th century BC, etc. texts. We think there could be multiple meanings in them because God is the ultimate author, but we just deny that they were meant to teach what mainstream Catholic Christianity eventually came up with. No, not in the first century, but in the fourth. About capes, that's another conversation. It's not going to persuade us to just gesture at one of many authors, just because that author has an interpretation like yours. So yeah, Dr. Heiser, I do encourage you to go beyond the stereotypes. You are an independent thinker, and you're better than the comments that I've just been discussing. Let's have a real argument. Let's have a contest between your understanding of the scriptures and what we actually think. That'll be more fun, more interesting, and more informative for everyone. This week's thinking music has been the track The Simple Complex by Uncle Bibby. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can download or listen to that entire track. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.